<laughs> Welcome everybody. Hi, this is the Cultural Studies Podcast. I'm Toby Miller and I'm in the Lord Palmerston Hotel in North London with a new friend, Liz Dufray. How are you, Liz? I'm good. Thank you. Now, what brings you to North London? Well, thank you for entering the pod. Um, well, I'm here for... I'm here for two conferences actually. So I just presented just now at the London um, Film and Media Conference, and then I was at the Celebrity Studies Conference last week, and I was also doing some research at the BBC Archives. So make Macquarie Uni get their bang for their buck for sending me over. This is Macquarie University in North Sydney, in Australia. Yeah, that's right. In yeah. Ride. Yeah, right. yeah. North okay. Ride TAFE. Yeah. And North Ride TAFE. <laughs> yes, it used to be a school for. Spoiled rich kids. I don't know whether it's still is. A little bit, yeah. We've, um, yeah, we're not the most diverse place. They're working on it, certainly. And the unis face they're in their fiftieth year this year, so there's a big push towards expansion and all that kind of stuff, which is uh-huh. good. But yeah. And the celebrity studies conference. Where was that? That was at Uni of London Holloway. Uh-huh. So, and that was really good. That was the second one. So the first one was in Melbourne. Must be two years ago now. And what did you talk about? I was talking about comedy and celebrity and uh, disability. So um, Adam Hills's program, The Last Leg, which was on here for the London 2012 Paralympics. And Adam Hills is an Australian comedian who's been kicking around for the better part of 20 years. I don't know. Have you come across? Adam? No, I haven't. He's really great. He's a he's a stand up. Um, and at home, he well, he's kind of lived in between Sydney and London for the better part of. Well, well over a decade, and what got him kind of um, famous in this instance is he's got he's missing a leg. He was born without a leg, and so for the Paralympics for London, um, Channel Four wanted to do kind of have a comedy review show um, and involve a mainstream audience talking about the Paralympics. But weren't quite sure how to do it, so you know, and put up. This idea of the show, The Last Leg, and you know, was kind of playing with the whole idea, and it's fantastic. It's really good. He did a similar thing at home for the ABC, for the Beijing Beijing Olympics. He first of all just did a, um, he just did a call of the opening ceremony and stuff, a bit like the old Roy and HG kind of, you know, those comedic calls, and then, um, and then, yeah, Channel Four put him on just for the initial run, and it was so successful that now he's doing like a new series. They're in series three now. Yeah, so it was really good. It was all about disabled celebrity and is it okay to, to joke about disability? And the, the reason the, the show was really successful was it had a hashtag, is it okay? That was playing on that second screen kind of, you know, engagement. But it was also that respectful dialogue. So rather than just tagging, actually having a question and participation and allowing people to respond and say, well, yes, it is okay to ask, do you take your leg off before you go into the pool? Well, no, it's not okay. You know, all that kind of stuff. It was great. It's really, really good. Lots of fun to research too. Tips for the temporarily able body. Yeah, so <laughs> yeah, it's really good, but it's really interesting too because I've, I've been a fan of his for a long time, since so he's stand up and that type of thing, and he he's been really um, honest about his choices in deciding when to talk about his disability as part of his comedy, and he had been advised very early on in his career to wait until he was a, be- a good enough comedian to talk about it in a nuanced way. So it was really interesting because he was told as a young comic, you know, if you're not, then you'll just be the one-legged comedian. So establish yourself as a comedian and a good one first, then talk about your leg, then you'll be able to do it in the right way. So 
all of that went into all of that. You know, it was fun. And what's you, what was your take? Did you have a position on this? Yeah, I think it. Well, my position was under what terms is it okay to be seen as a celebrity associated, like a, a disabled celebrity, I guess. Mm. But also what. Um, what skills are required to do that, and, and particularly comedic skills. So there was lots, um, there was lots that had come out because it was, you know, because it was online and because, you know, with the with the hashtag and everything. People talk about that second screening stuff as if it's kind of fallen from the sky, fully formed, you know. Whereas I hope to show that the reason Hills worked so successfully was because he'd learnt how to build that respectful dialogue on stage, starting with his own disability and anticipating, I showed this bit in the paper and talked about it in a book chapter um, that was related to it, um, where he starts with his own disability and talks about people reacting to him at a party when he says, I've only got one leg. And as he tells the story, he anticipates the curiosity of those listening as well as the silence as they wait for him to answer. And every time you play that, so he tells this story about um, he was at a party and he said, I only have one leg. And apparently this woman who was at the party said, can you still have sex? He said, well, yeah, what does your boyfriend do? Does he need a run-up? You know. <laughs> and then apparently someone else said to him, well, do you take it off to have sex? And he said, which always gets a laugh, but then it goes quiet because everyone in the room goes... Do you? So, and what's hilarious is every time uh, I've played that, and you know, tell it, the same reaction happens because he's so nuanced. It's that great kind of comedic skill to say, right, anticipate the audience and invert it. So he's got to be a good comedian first mm. in order for any of the rest of that stuff to work. So I guess that was a long way around of saying, I guess that's what my position was. You know, you had to be, you had to have those existing skills and then transport them to the new medium, as opposed to just throw it in the deep end and make it happen, you know. So. Wow, okay, cool. Yeah. And what were you researching in the BBC archives? Early music TV. So I'm looking at... Kathy um, McGowan, Ready, Steady, Go, no, 6-5 Live. Six, five, yeah, 6-5 six, Special. 6-5 Special, I'm Yeah, sorry. so I had all the archives for 6-5 Special, um, and which is really amazing stuff they've kept. But there's very few full episodes. So um, it's all, you know, it's piecing together bits of history because I'm trying to do a comparative between um, early music TV here and early music TV in Australia. So looking at Six O'Clock Rock and all those old archives because everybody, in, in what little has been written, written about Six O'Clock Rock, um, lots of references have been made to Six Five Special. So I wanted to know what exactly was going on so that I could flesh out the comparison a bit more. So And my idea is that there's... There was a lot more to it than Boys and Rock and Roll, basically. Not to discredit the idea of Boys and Rock and Roll, because they were very important, but jazz was present, and there were a lot of female performers. Finding in Australia this amazing clip, this Italian crooner lady, you know, in the 50s, which you wouldn't expect to be on mainstream television, you know, given what we think we know about that period. So, yeah, it's really, it's really fun. Mm. Yeah. When my... Family moved to Australia. I seem to remember there would be fillers between programs in the afternoon with Nina and Frederick, right. a then married couple right. from maybe Scandinavia who wore light skinned turtlenecks and sang to one another love songs with a lute or something. Really? Do you remember? Probably 90% of that's wrong, but I'd look up <laughs> Nina and Frederick. Do you mind if I take this down? Not at all. Well, you'll be able to listen to it on your oh, yeah, immortalised yeah. podcast. That's true, hope. that's true, yeah. But I think that's what happened, and then, of course, inevitably, they were divorced. Right. But 
I do make shit up, and I could have made all of that up, but I have a very strong recollection. Nina and somebody. Nina and Frederick. Nina and Frederick. That bit I'm reasonably confident about. They sound fantastic. You see, the hard thing about, I've found, about researching this stuff is you can't, you, you know, you can't go to Google. You've got to know what you're looking for in order to find it, right. you know. So. And actually, I guess Kathy McGowan must have was on ITV, wasn't she? Wasn't it? I don't know. I know the ABC. Ready, steady, go might have been on ITV, not BBC. I oh, okay. The, the BBC, so I looked at that, I found some jukebox jury. Files. Oh, great, David Jacobs. Yeah, an amazing file on when the jukebox jury featured the Beatles. And there was all of these. I remember it. I remember watching, watching, I remember seeing the Stones. Yeah, oh. well. Do you, back here. do you remember whether or not John Lennon was cut out? Because according to the complaint letters that have been kept, the camera work was terrible, and it was as if there was only three of them. And there are all these fabulous letters, you know, full fan groups saying, John's the best, and how did you cut him out? And then the Wonderful. BBC having to reply. And apparently it looks like, again, piecing together the archaeology of what's left. For whatever reason, they didn't turn up until 20 minutes before they started filming. So the BBC had these wonderful plans to, you know, rehearse it all and whatever, and they couldn't. So the cameraman and everybody else were just working on the fly, and that's why How apparently I didn't know that. Yeah. Have you looked at David Jacobs' autobiography? I haven't, no. It came out a few years ago. He just died, actually. Oh, okay. There was a lot of material about him. Uh-huh. I've not read his autobiography, but I wonder if it's mentioned in that. Oh, okay. Might Thank be you. a place to go. Yeah, well, yeah. But all I can remember is their being there and the stones, and I guess everybody really who was anybody at that time would appear on Jukebox Jury. Yeah. Well, do you know if there's many of the actual recordings of that left? No idea. I mean, I, I tried to look, I wanted to look at. Uh, the Kathy McGowan Ready Steady Go stuff, and I could find very little of it. Yeah, I don't think I know that. Um, well, the BBC seemed to hold quite a lot in lockdown, and there's quite a lot in the BFI by the looks yeah. of it. Mm. Um, but the restriction, there's restricted access to that stuff too, because I guess they're all in cahoots about whether or not they're going to release them commercially and sure. all that kind of and business. What about in Australia? Can you? Uh, how do you get hold of things there? Well, you have to apply to. The archives are all over the place. So it took me 18 months to get access to the Six O'Clock Rock archives because just the written archives, there's only two recordings that they know of that are still in existence. However, if you go to YouTube, there's about six different episodes. What, so, what station was it on? ABC. It was on the ABC, yeah. which is the public broadcaster like CBC or NBC. or Sorry, CBC or BBC. Yeah, yeah. So, and what had happened. So I was chasing just, again, early music television, which had kind of, it was a little thread that had come out of my thesis that I thought, oh, I'll just explore this. There was a female presenter who was mentioned, tiny little footnotes, but then nowhere else, because all the stories have been dominated by Johnny O'Keefe, you know, the Australian, well, some people call him the Australian Elvis, or, you know, the, the big kind of, the big bang for rock and roll. But I thought, oh, there must have been other stuff happening. Like it, and he was only host for a little while, and there was a whole lot of jazz people present, so I just wanted to find out. As part of my thesis, I initially contacted, rang the ABC first and said, is there anything? They said, oh, it's all gone to the archive. Could be in Sydney, could be in Canberra. Then when I finally got onto Sydney, it was unclassified, which they still couldn't tell me if that meant that you couldn't have it or just nobody had asked. Then the person that was looking after me left, so it was 18 months later when I finally chased it up and got something. And even then they 
it was like going through Nana's old slides. Like there's just all these pictures that are really badly catalogued and, you know, all over the place. So they kind of don't know what it is they've got and what they don't have. So it's really, it's really bizarre. There's a big file on Johnny and, you know, his various, his demise and all that stuff, you know, and he, all these beautiful internal memos that every telegram he ever sent and every kind of, all of that's been kept. But all that behind the scenes stuff, what, what it came to has been lost, you know, which is a bit of a shame. Wow. Yeah. Have you talked to Brian Henderson? Is he the person? Who was this guy? He used to be a newsreader in yeah. Australia, but before that he had a music TV show. Bandstand. Bandstand. Yeah, yeah, I've heard Brian Henderson's, he's still alive, I've heard he's unwell. Oh, I see. Yeah, he came out, um, he did the Logies, which is our... <laughs> The poorest version of the Emmys, <laughs> our local TV things. He, he, he did that a couple of years ago, and I mean, he looked fine, but he was very carefully stage managed. I think is the term. So I don't know what state he's in. Okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. But it's a good idea. Because that must have been pretty early as well, wasn't it? Yeah, bandstand. What, what years started, are we talking about? Six o'clock rock and Six o'clock rock started in 1958, and. Bandstand was on around the same time and they were kind of competitors. Six O'Clock Rock died in 61 and from memory Bandstand went on for the better part of 10 years and that was modelled on the American Bandstand and was very clearly Brian Henderson, one of the beautiful quotes, descriptions of him is that he was as wild as the local librarian, you know, the, the, the big glasses and was meant to kind of convince mums and dads that rock and roll was not going to harm their children, you know, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And they've just started releasing, Channel 9 had more episodes of Bandstand. So Which is a private commercial network. Yeah, that's, some of that's just been released and actually it's brilliant. So you see early Peter Allen, there's one with Peter Allen and Liza Minnelli when they were still married and the Allen brothers and amazing kind of bits and pieces but it's this strange little snapshot of history, you know. It's really, that stuff's really fabulous but the, that's a bit later, that stuff was sort of mid-60s by then. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Yeah. And you mentioned your dissertation a couple of times. What yeah. was it about? It was about the relationship between popular music and broadcasting in times of crisis for both. So I started looking at, you know, but it was narratives of births and deaths. So video will kill the radio star, television's going to kill radio, or punk's going to kill rock, or all those kind of things. And I found this little pattern where when one was said to be in crisis, the other was kind of quite came to its rescue, but happened to be very prominent. So the Big Bang is the television, the idea that, you know, rock and roll coincided with television and helping to get both over the line, if you like. But if you go back and have a look, there was my supervisor, Bruce Johnson, did some amazing work around the beginnings of jazz, uh, or the big beginnings of radio and its effect on Australian jazz and how prior to radio we'd read about jazz but we didn't really know what it was and what, what we were calling jazz was actually sounded and looked very different to what was happening in other parts of the world because we had restricted access and we were so far away and you know lots of other bits and pieces going on but when the radio turned up because all of a sudden we could hear what other people were doing that kind of strange little fragmentation little became homogenized and we got something else you know so I was looking at those kind of key periods and then starting to look at what music video did and Australia's really unique insofar as we've got music video on the ABC still rage still goes and that's been a really influential part of the local music scene so that's been going for almost 30 years now and finding that that's become a real important touchstone for the generations of artists that grow up 
watching that and getting their musical, their first musical educations, if you like, and you know, anecdotes of bands getting together by virtue of staying up and watching these music video programs. And interestingly, that is also the place where they were playing old music television. So they'd play old episodes of Countdown, which was the 1970s kind of pre-music video touchstone. And that was really important because that was the first kind of national music television program that really launched people like ACDC got their first start there and Split Ends got their first start there. And, you know, it was really influential place, you know, and, and unified unified the scene for Australia in lots of ways. So made it viable for bands to go on the road and actually be known in, in different places, you know, as opposed to just being regionalised. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, that was kind of, and it, it, the whole idea was to take it to the present day and say, okay, well, what's happening online now? And are, you know, is it all going to die or do we, do we rely... Does broadcasting and what it's become still rely on music? And does music still rely on broadcasting? And in Australia, I think it still does because apart from anything else, nobody starts at A in iTunes and listens to everything because you just couldn't. So you still need those touchstones of, you know, those arbiters of taste, I guess. So, yeah, that was... Sorry, that was the long way around. There's 100,000 words in there. And are there parts of this that have been published that folks can read? Yeah, so the, there's a chapter on Rage, which is that music video program that I was talking about, and that's really unique in lots of in lots of ways. And that's in um, an Australian popular music, Australasian popular music journal called Perfect Beat. Um, and I've written a little bit about uh, the resurgence of music quiz programs at home because they seem to have both kind of turned, there were two really important ones that turned up in the mid-2000s and were used as a way to showcase performance of music, Spicks and Specs and Rock Quiz. So I've written a bit about that and I've also written about Countdown and the idea of Countdown, 70s music television is now cult TV, so people thinking they remember it or starting to even, I mean, Countdown predates me, but I feel that I remembered it. You know what I mean? Because I've read so much and seen it and you know what I mean? This whole idea of the influence something had, even though it wasn't my memories, if you know, so if you know what I mean. So that's around two, that's in Participations, which is, I think that's free actually. Yeah, I think that's open access. So, With Rage, could you tell us a little bit more about the program? Yeah, so Rage is an overnight music video program, uh, music video program, yeah, so running back to back with no, importantly, it doesn't have a regular host. Commercial started, free? Yep, commercial free on the ABC. It goes... Friday and Saturday nights, and it was initially introduced 1987 just as a way to fill the dead air. ABC weren't broadcasting 24 hours and they wanted to explore with overnight broadcast. They thought, what's going to be cheap and easy? We'll chuck music videos on. And they knew so little of what they were doing when they started that it was programmed. One person that programmed it just put everything alphabetical, according to artists. Then they decided, oh, well, we'll use it as a way to tick off genres. So I hope they have, put the whatever under T. Well... Yeah, you'd hope so, wouldn't you? <laughs> Proper archival work. That's right. Although, again, I mean, you want to talk about what's not left. There's nothing left for those. Because what do you archive? Playlists? Which they do, actually. But the interesting thing about Rage is because it's hostless, um, I mean, they do have guest programmers now, but because it hasn't had a regular host, the good thing is it hasn't dated. So most music television will date as the face of the person pre- presenting it dates, you know what I mean? People feel that, oh, well, we don't really want to be associated with this, with this most often this old bloke and what he, he's not speaking for us anymore. Um, so Rage kind of kept on because it was apparently timeless. It's also really important because um, the people that were running it were really 
clever about how they went for funding. So for some times they'd be arguing that it was a, a music program and supporting video art mm-hmm. where commercial stations weren't. So, you know, they'd play full version of film clips and they wouldn't cut them down, they wouldn't put um, text over the top of them any more than was necessary to brand, you know. They also were archiving in a way that no one else was. So a lot of Australian bands don't have copies of their music, their early music videos, Rage does. Um, and then it also became, as I say, this touchstone, this kind of institution to go home and watch Rage, get a bit pissed. The idea was Rage to the Puke, that was the original title. Come home on a Friday, Saturday night, chuck on the TV, I'll just watch one more, just watch one more. This idea of just, you know, having the wave of music kind of hit you, you know. Rage to the Puke. That was the original title, yeah. And did it articulate at all to the radio? Yeah, uh, it used to, simul- yeah, used to simulcast on Triple J, which is the national youth broadcaster, um, and it's still... Rage has been kind of the test pilot for new mediums as they've emerged. So they first started exploring with um, internet, what we'd call streaming TV now, but internet delivery um, they started doing with Rage, putting film clips up and letting people download them at whatever it was, 56 kilobytes or whatever, very, very slowly, high res and low res, and then they explored with apps, first of all, so as, as well. So, you know, yeah, but I don't think... Now Rage is pretty much just on television, although you can get the app and follow along, and they've got a really active, active social media feed as well. So it's become this really interesting place, particularly for memorialising Australian artists or, or international artists when they die. So, for example, when Lou Reed died, there was they had a Lou Reed special just recently. Doc Neeson of the Angels died. So it was interesting that you'd have the, the Rage special, then you could be following the Twitter feed, and it's like you've got this communal wake, if you like, of people were sharing their... Mm. What, sharing their what mi- happened to Doc Neeson? He had um, brain tumour. Yeah, so he only died... It would have been just before I left, so maybe two or three, two or three weeks ago. Mm. Yeah, we're never going to see his face again. <laughs> so to speak, this was yeah. one of their hits, something. Yeah, am I ever going to see your face again was yeah. the biggest one. Yeah, with yeah, the rude refrain that went with it. <laughs> I don't remember that. No way, get fucked, fuck off. Yeah. Am I ever gonna see your face again? And that, and that was the big crowd response, which Doc would very happily encourage. So, Milk, uh, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Now, what about the film and media conference? What yeah. was your paper on there? So that was the early music TV stuff. Oh, so I was Yeah, so I was presenting what I'd found for Six O'Clock Rock and what I was starting to find for Six Five Special, which was, apart from these boys and rock and roll, which was great, there was lots of other stuff going on. So lots of other genres, um, lots of other genders. Well, obviously, there's, by that I just mean there were a lot more women than you'd think, and they weren't just down the front dancing, they were presenting and they were, um, you know, they were artists in their own right, but none of that's really been written about. So I'm just curious to know why that is and what that's kind of left out. And as my model, I was kind of using um, Wald's book, um, How the Beatles Destroyed Rock and Roll. I'm not sure if you know it, but Mm -hmm. basically the idea that um, the Beatles narrative has become so big that we've kind of forgotten that there was other stuff going on. Mm. You know, we've kind of stopped looking at that other stuff. And by virtue of doing that, I mean, they did destroy something because they overshadowed everything so much, you know. So I was kind of hoping to make a similar argument with people like Johnny O'Keefe and those big, those big dominant narratives that we've just come to recycle at the expense of 
looking at what else was going on at the time. So it was, it was pretty well received. I think small audience because it's those five parallel session things and on a Friday afternoon. But, you know, you want quality over quantity, so hopefully somebody got something out of it. That's great. Yeah. That's great. So what's your next thing or what are you working on at the moment other than all these other things which is quite a lot yeah well at the moment i'm exploring australia's a really interesting case in terms of what tv means for us now internationally so i'm exploring um piracy basically we're the number one pirate number number one pirate nation if you like for um illegally downloading television so it's something that i've started being interested in um well i'll say informally well, as a researcher though, because there were some things I simply couldn't get my hands on. And also to, by virtue of the work I was doing, I'd have all these linked in via social media to things like the Radio Times and the New Yorker and HBO and all those things. So I'd get in my feeds, well spoilers, of all of the stuff I was missing out on. So you kind of have a choice of saying, well, do I, you know, Australia will play international content, but often it's at a quite a um, significant delay, which has been happening for years. I mean, we got TV the better part of two decades after everybody else, so, you know, we're used to that happening, but we've never quite been in a situation where we've had in our face, this is what you're missing out on, you know? So I read a very interesting piece you wrote online about this. Can you tell people where to find that and what it is? Yeah, th and thank you, that's nice. Um, it's on uh, uh, Critical Studies in Television, the blog, and it's... Um, so you can just find it there. It's got the title is all um, the whole country of Australia pirates TV, which came from actually Louis C.K. He did an interview with American Radio of all things. U.S. stand-up comic and yeah. actor. Yeah, with his he was talking about his stand-up. Hey show. Cyrus, what's up? Um, he was talking about his stand-up show Louis. Well, it's a sitcom, um, and he was talking about fans in Australia and the fact that they were telling him that they they have to access his show illegally because mm. there was no legal channel to get it. So, and he said, you know, he basically said all of Australia does this, you know, in America and other places, it's only the weirdos that download illegally. But because we can't access something, we just do it. And he was actually really positive about it. He just went, well, if you're going to be screwed, take it. He said, you know. One of the points I think you were making in the piece, so I'm not an expert on Australian media, was that there's a stranglehold on the delivery of material caused yeah. by the hegemony of some cable yeah. networks. Is that right? Yeah. There's only one big network, the Fox Network, mm. which is Rupert Murdoch's baby. And again, I'm very sorry right. that, you know, we gave the world Rupert and now he's screwing us over too. But, I mean, it's he's trying to work cable the way he works in everywhere. So you take something... Um, you restrict its access and then you say the only way to get it is to sign up to my cable network in order to access and it happens with sport most often. Um, the problem with Australia is first of all it's very very expensive and it's not it's often not easily accessible across the country so there are big black spots and they've also not really done their homework in terms of say things like on demand so you might sign up and say, all right, well, I can access the cable, but then I can't watch it on my tablet in slow when I want to, you know, or you've got to sign up for 24 months or, you know, it's just, it's really highly restrictive. And even then, and the example of the Louis show, for example, Fox owns the rights to Louis show, but are still not showing it, still not broadcasting it locally for months after it's been broadcast 
in the US, which just doesn't make sense. You know, I don't understand why, and Australians, it's this FOMO thing, the fear of missing out. We're just, well, why? FOMO. FOMO, yeah, fear of missing out. Yeah, we just, why should we have to wait? You know, there's no, I think, I think that's really what gives the audience the shits about it, to put it bluntly. Mm. So, and that piece, I should say, is actually something that my, myself and a colleague, um, Steve Collins are hoping to build up, we were hoping to build up actually into a, a little monograph just looking at this and Steve's a media lawyer as well as being an academic and a very good one um, and so we were, he was going to look at it from the legal perspective because there's a whole lot of grey areas in the law in Australia. So for example, um, you can pay for Netflix, American Netflix with an Australian credit card but we actually don't legally have Netflix. So people are routing, you know, setting up a fake IP so that they can access it and thinking, well, if I'm paying for it and you're letting me pay for it, surely it's not illegal. And actually, the law's not clear about whether or not it is. And the consumer, um, it's just been, uh, I'm not sure if it was in the piece or not, I can't remember now, but it's just been announced Choice, who's the consumer advocacy group, actually came out and said, you know, this is, this is genuinely confusing, you know, and people, and, and we're telling, recommending that people access that. What goes on with Slingbox in Australia and things like that? I don't know what Slingbox is. Oh, so Slingbox is a service whereby one might have, for example, a cable or satellite subscription anywhere in the world. Oh, right. Say here, say the United States. Right. And you attach a Slingbox to the network, right. to the cable box. The Slingbox sends a unique signal only to you. Oh. Anywhere in the world, online, right, and you can watch all your stations wherever really? you are. Really, I don't know it, but it's going on my list of things to look up. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I don't know. Yeah, it's handy if you're traveling. It's handy if you want to watch something in particular that isn't available in the country where you live. And right. at least in the United States, it's legal. Yeah, right. I had one. There were no problems with it. It's still selling. Yeah. I wonder what the deal is in Australia, where it would be quite possible to get a not very expensive cable box deal somewhere yeah. in the United States, just warehouse it somewhere. Yeah. I think they'll actually do it for you. Yeah, right. For a fee, and where you go. Yeah. And you don't pay Uncle Rupert a cent, provided you don't use his uh, wireless services. I see. Yes. Yeah, okay. okay. Might be an interesting one for you guys to look yeah, into. Yeah, no, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is the thing, there's all, I mean, the Netflix stuff has only been relatively recent, right. although in these studies they're finding there's something like, well, they estimate there's somewhere like 20,000 Netflix accounts that, have, that are Australian. So, I mean, it's not an insignificant number, and even if it's, I mean, I don't know, it, I, I, even if it was a quarter of that, I still don't think that's an insignificant number, really. So, and because it's, it's, that, it's that catch of pain. So, the whole idea with catch of pain. Of pain. The fact what does that, that mean? Of, of paying? Well, yeah, paying. It's a catch so, of pain. No, 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 no. <laughs> well, there is the pain of missing out. <laughs> we want our TV now. But I think that people, it, it really is that thing. People don't, people acknowledge that they, the, um, the importance of paying an artist. Mm. They acknowledge, you know, they don't necessarily, this whole idea that people just want it for free and they don't give a shit about, you know, the people involved, I think, I don't think that's right. And actually one of the things Steve and I hope to explore is compare it to the music industry and say, no, actually, people will pay, they just don't want to pay the bloated people in the middle. You know, it was the crisis in the music industry was never a crisis over other fans for music. The crisis was we don't want to play a bullshit record company anymore.
that was the crisis, you know. So I think this is the same thing that's happening with television. Is people are saying, well, we we still want to pay for content. And one of the points I made, hopefully made sense in that piece, was to say we so much want to pay for content that we'll pay for startups for things that haven't even been made yet, you know. And that's quite a big thing in Australia. So it's not to say that we're, that we're scrooges and we don't want to pay. It's just we want to have a reasonable service in return. What are startups? Oh, so startups are like so. Kickstarter is probably the big one, um, where you pledge artists. Amanda Palmer was kind of the poster child for it. You, um, as an artist, or lots of organisations are doing them actually. You put out to your fan base. You say, "I'd like to make this project. I need X amount of money to do it. Are you willing to pledge?" Now, and and some people and you. Often you can say how much you want to pledge. Sometimes artists will offer particular prizes or gifts in return, you know, and so for $10 you might get the first copy of the CD, for $20 you might get your name in the liner notes, for $30, I know Rufus Wainwright's doing one at the moment where you get to be part of what he's calling his Hallelujah Chorus. So when he tours, when he sings his cover of um, Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah, if you've pledged, you get to come and sing it with him, you know, which... I'll shamelessly say, I put my money behind. I'm very happy to do that, you know. And if it means that I also then help fund his next project for an artist I believe in who I feel, I'm, you know, it's, it's part tip jar and thank you. And it's also, it is that kind of, that connection and that, you know, acknowledgement of somebody's work and that you believe in their work. So, you know, the, the Australian version of it is um, plausible and that's got, that's had quite, quite good success. You know, but it's and they, there's weird things happening through that too. So there's a Save Live Music Australia um, fund that goes through Possible, and lots of people are again. That's that's about um, acknowledging too, not just the money, but also showing to the powers that be that there is an audience for stuff. Just because they may not be paying through traditional means, doesn't mean they don't want to pay. They just don't want to pay the middleman. Mm. Mm. Wow, that's fascinating. And do you? Th- think that this bodes ill for the future of satellite and cable in Australia? Well, it's hard because I don't think... Cable's never really taken off in Australia, I, I don't think. Uh-huh. It's, it's been around for, geez, it'd be, it's at least 10 years, if not a little bit more than that, and there were... I, I'm, I'm not really sure about that, but it's at least 10 years. And it's, it's always been this problem that it's been, first of all, difficult to access, so it's really only been a metro areas and even then you know you had to you know some one side of the street would have it one side one metropolitan areas the bigger cities yeah that's right yeah that's right so um very expensive the content's been without putting too fine a point on it crap you know so i mean recently i think um they've started to invest a lot more in say local production so um, and I think that that's starting to take off quite well. So they did a remake. You remember the old Prisoner prisoner show, Cell Block H, which was called over here, I think. They've done a remake of that called Wentworth that happened just on um, just on cable, and that did really well. A women's so, prison narrative. Yeah, kind of a pre... I'd, I'd love to do... I'd love to know if the makers of Orange of the New Black know about Prisoner, you know, because I think it's... I mean, ours was much daggier than that. <laughs> 
Um, but you know that yeah, that kind of that kind of strange story. So that original drama that did quite well with. Um, yeah, but it's just, it's so restrictive, it's so expensive, you know, so I, th- I think that's why people are taking it up. And again, because the service isn't great, you know, if you have to wait, why should you have to wait months for something? It's just, you know. It's interesting that the Murdoch people are trying to breed scarcity when that isn't functioning by the sound of it yeah. effectively as a recruitment yeah. device. Yeah. Have you spoken to them or have you heard them explain this? No, uh, no there's been little rumblings in the press, um, but their position is very much like the old music industry position. No, this lot of pirates and they should be punished. And I mean, our, you know, the government position, there's a um, Senator, Senator Brandis at home who wants to really crack down on piracy. So, I mean, if I was cynical, I'd suggest that Brandis and Murdoch are in cahoots and they just, they just want the problem to go away. They don't actually want to look into why people are, why people are doing this and maybe provide them a better service. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, look, if I was them, I'd be... I'd be looking at what's being pirated and do something about it. You know? And I know that um, I spoke to um, some producers at SBS who do a music program, actually. SBS is our other public service broadcaster, um, who do a music program on um, called Pop Asia, which started on Cape Pop, Pop Asia. Asia. So, which was music videos um, on the Korean wave. And one of the things they did in order to help establish that program was they went to producers in Korea and said, actually, some of the biggest downloads are coming from Australia, and it's because there's no legal way to access the material. There's no legal way to access the material. If you give us a legal way, people will people will buy, and they've had great, great success with it. You know, so you can use those. You can use those figures for good. You know, and I do think. You know, I mean, iTunes, once iTunes is set up kind of properly at home, I do think more people are buying that way. Certainly for music they were. But again, we're having the issue with TV where Murdoch's also got, or Fox has also got its restrictions on iTunes. So Game of Thrones is the poster child for all of this at home, as it is everywhere. But the big problem at home for Game of Thrones was that Murdoch's... Murdoch, Murdoch had the exclusive rights to Game of Thrones, which they did play kind of in tandem with the international release. Um, but they restricted iTunes having it until it had been broadcast on cable, which meant the market that used to download it via iTunes couldn't. So then they were just, if they did, rather than signing up for Foxtel, they were just downloading it illegally, you know, so making it scarce didn't, didn't help him in that, in that regard. And that's been covered in the mainstream press kind of really blatantly, I think, you know, I was quite shocked about how many people were not quite spelling out, this is the torrent site you go to and this is how you do it, but, you know, they were talking about, I mean, not quite spelling it out, but it, you didn't have to look very Are well. there many prosecutions or is it unclear what the legal situation it's is? It's really unclear, yeah, it's really unclear. I don't know of any <laughs> prosecutions at home, having said that. Um, it's not to say there couldn't be and you know I have to admit after I published that blog there was part of it that oh shit what have I admitted to you know and I think part of the problem that Steve and I part of the reason that Steve and I can't get this up is because people are frightened you know about being any discussion of this runs very close to being seen to um, endorse it I don't know what happens in Australian schools but in the United States it's frequently the case we're told that there are spies among the students 
for the Recording Industry Association of America and the Motion Picture Association, maybe, who, you know, corrupt students or give them money when they're in proletarianized situations to disclose the grey sector activities of their colleagues. So I always urge my students not to disclose whatever dodgy downloading or streaming yeah. which is more common there they may undertake. Yeah, well that makes sense. I mean Steve runs, established a course actually called Free Cultures which I was lucky enough to first tutor on him with and that's kind of how we started mm -hmm. talking about this stuff mm -hmm. which is all about that and looks at those questions, starts with the history of copyright and you know the statue of air, statue of air, statue of air is a different thing. <laughs> um, you know and that what copyright's meant to protect you know and and, and then we did, we'd ask students and we, you'd always have to be, now of course none of you would do this but if hypothetically you had ever engaged in this practice, do you think it's wrong? When do you think yeah. it's wrong? Where are your own kind of moral So it's interesting in terms of institutional review boards of ethics as to yeah. what you could get through because you're asking people to disclose potentially illegal conduct yeah. Yeah. on the record. And of course now after what's happened with Boston College and mm. the Irish Republican Army questions, there's the prospect of precedents that say that information that was given as oral history and confidence actually is not exempted yeah. from the capacity of the courts and the repressive state apparatus yeah. to subpoena materials. Yeah, no, it's, it's terrifying. I mean, I guess, look, I think everybody at home, there's a certain feeling that, it's a bit of a Robin Hood feeling, I guess. I think people think, and certainly, I mean, I... If I download something, it's to access it first. But I, if I like it, I'll always buy it. So something like the examples that I gave with Doctor Who and Sherlock in that piece, I own them on. I own multiple copies in multiple formats of those. So I mean, okay, I did access them early, but then they have well and truly got their money out of me, you know. Plus, all the, which which is actually a really common practice. And I remember Stephen Fry talking about this. It was one of the Apple talks we gave about the culture of free and. You know, is it really stealing? You know, all of those kind of piracy no, it's, ads. You know, uh, long been regarded by those in the know as the best form of marketing. Exactly. And his idea was, he said, you know, okay, if you can't pay now, they are the people that do pay later. Yeah, so, fine. yeah, I think so too. I really think so too. Yeah. So, but you have terrified me a little bit. There is, you know, there is part of it. Oh, let's check that hard drive. <laughs> so. Well, listen, Liz, when you and your collaborator finish this project in whatever form, yeah. to the extent that the truth can be shared on iTunes, <laughs> I would love it if you would come back into the pod and tell us I've... everything that has happened. I mean, I may even go to visit you. Place. In Wentworth. Yeah, yeah, well, that's you. <laughs> no, it'd be really good. It'd be really All good. Right. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Thanks.